Yes, hello folks, welcome to the Global Football Show. I'm your host as always, Phil Brand, joining me today, regular co-host Zach Louie. Uh, this is our first one of the year, unfortunately, due to me being on holiday, having to move, and a few other things that prohibited our ability to get these shows out, but we're delighted to be bringing you the first one of the year. Lots to talk about today. First of all, before we get into all our topics, Zach, how you doing, mate? Hey, Phil, doing very well. Very excited to be discussing... Uh, the latest global football show today. We've got a lot of topics to get to. Yes, we sure do. We'll talk about, of course, the Juventus yeah. situation where it seems like, once again, we're back in a similar situation to Calciopoli where the club is marred in scandal. And we'll, we'll ask a bigger question of how widespread is this in football? Because clearly there's a culture here where Juventus felt comfortable that this type of behaviour uh, is something they could get away with. <clears throat> Mm-hmm. Uh, we talk about, of course, contracts in football. We see what's going on with Chelsea with the, uh, of course, seven-year contracts and whether, you know, of course, this is done for amortization to get around FFP. You know, FFP, yep. which has had no legal teeth in the past, you know, is it really enforceable? I mean, City have ridiculed it, uh, not just City, PSG and others. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about Mikel Arteta and um, whether Marcelo Bielsa is the right answer for Everton in a relegation battle. Uh, so lots to get through. First of all, my friend, Juventus. Yeah. Um, the story football club, unbelievable football club, um, arguably the biggest football club in Italy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yet can't seem to extricate itself from scandal. And we had Calciopoli years ago, of course. Um, you know, we've had doping scandals in Italy. Um, no no, no league is without scandal, let's make that clear. I'm not singling out Italians or singling out Juventus. Uh, this is, you know, there's scandal everywhere, and we'll get into that a little bit later, of course, when we elucidate on some of the financial aspects in football. But, Zach, when I look at the incentives, Obviously, we FFP is something that all football clubs stand up for. But it seems to me that the upper echelons of football, these clubs have now basically dedicated themselves to circumventing these rules. Yeah. Um, Juventus have had a 15-point deduction. The prosecutor only asked for nine. They got 15. And this is only the first part of the trial. The second part of the trial deals with how they paid salaries during COVID. Um so tell me what's your take on this yeah absolutely i think that juventus it's interesting for me because they've been such a well-run club financially from the uh naked eye shall we say you know you look at what they did after being relegated due to the calciopoli scandal in 2006 you know they were able to return quickly to syria uh, had a rough start, but were able to have get their own stadium, which uh, helped. You know, n- not having that, having to share the revenue with a municipal government, for example. You know, having the ability to control that, I think, was really massive for them. And they were able to, uh, as well, exploit that in terms of transfers, bringing in such key players and bringing in that spine of Barzagli, Chiellini, and whatnot. But I think that in recent years, one of the biggest issues with Juventus is they have gone, uh, they have, shall we say, abandoned some of that process and uh, put all of their chips in. And we saw that recently with the signing of Cristiano Ronaldo uh, and Matej Stelic the following year, two massive transfers that really forced them to, I think, uh, cut into their uh, revenue in, in other areas. So I think that this is something that you look at the deals Arthur Miralampianic, the swap, Mm -hmm. this immediately comes to mind because it was an example of two players with massively bloated transfer fees. Uh, Juventus paying a ridiculous amount for Arthur with Barcelona as well paying a similar amount for Pjanic. Um, It was, shall we say, an example of them cooking the books. Uh, We've seen plenty of other deals uh, with just massively inflated uh, transfer fees. So I'm, I'm definitely glad to see some action being taken 15 points it's definitely uh, a lot i'm not sure what other repercussions they're going to face phil but it is certainly a killer blow for a team a juve team that was looking to challenge for the scudetto 
Yeah, I mean, look, okay, the rate off for season, you know, 15 points, uh, assuming that it doesn't get much worse. Although, I have to say, I was reading, doing a bit of research for this podcast, and I was reading that the expectation is the second part of this trial will be far worse than the first, and that Juventus should be expect, expect to be punished greater than the 15. So I don't think they'll end up in Serie B again as a consequence of this. But then I look at the wider picture, and I'm not saying this is mitigating, but why should anyone even remotely attempt to comply with FFP when we've seen such flagrant violations from Premier League clubs, for example? We've seen Manchester City, we've seen legal clubs and PSG basically legally challenge it. And they never seem, they always seem to come out ahead. So the question, I know that these football clubs signed up for these regulations, so they should comply. But there was investigations done, and I'm sure this practice is widespread. Once something becomes, you know, it's, once a precedent is set, then it becomes widespread, becomes culture. Where you've got sponsorship contracts <coughs> with people that are non-existent, with no one existing companies greatly inflated way beyond their value they were supposed to be an appraiser an appraiser brought in in the Premier League to, to look at this and to make sure this wasn't being done I know this was being applied to Newcastle and so I see the Manchester we saw the Spiegel stuff with Manchester City where they clearly cooked the books to comply with FFP so from a UEFA perspective, and I know this is primarily being done by the authorities in Italy, it's a bit hypocritical to me to come down on Juventus for financial irregularities when mm -hmm. other clubs are clearly doing the same thing, just in a different way. Yeah. But I also think the question is, Phil, is this part of some broader campaign from football's authorities to crack down on these transfers? I mean, I, I, I don't think that we should uh, say, shall we say, uh, you know, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good, right? Just sure, because yes, you yeah, can't punish yeah. all of the teams, you know, don't... With with regards to clubs such as Manchester City and Paris Saint-Germain, I agree with you. Not enough is being done to curb the amount of money they can spend. And in terms of... Uh, I know that there is the new rule change with contracts now being... Uh, limited limited to five years, but I think that in terms of yeah transfer spend, we're seeing how clubs like Chelsea are able to spend just ridiculous amounts, uh, whereas so many other clubs, you know, are unable to to come even close to it. Um, so I do agree with you. There is that element of hypocrisy, but as I said before, don't let the enemy, don't let uh, the perfect be the enemy of the good. <laughs> Yeah, but what I would say, and and I totally understand that conceptually, yeah. I understand the point that you're making, and I agree with it in principle, but in law, precedent yeah. is everything, mm -hmm. okay? I mean, it, it, it's the determining factor in so many uh, judicial outcomes. What is precedent here, right? And... If I'm Juventus, and I understand the Kumbaya attitude of, hey, if we can't punish him, but we're still going to punish you, um, to you and me. But if I'm Juventus, I'm not okay with that. I'm not okay with saying, yeah, I know, don't let you know, the perfect be the enemy and the good. You didn't yeah. let it get prosecute these, or you didn't prosecute these people, you weren't successful in prosecuting these people, but you want to come after me. You know, and, and I agree that, Zach, Maybe this is an issue for authorities outside yeah. of football. I don't know. Because there's obviously tax issues here. right? Yeah. There's obviously issues, especially if you're a publicly traded company. You've got investors, everything. There's serious financial fraud going on here. Now, yeah. most of this is happening with privatized football clubs that are being owned by people that need to find a way to be able to spend this money. I mean, I would love to know how Chelsea are going to comply with the FFP. I mean, there's just no possible way that can be done. There's no way yeah. that can be done. And what's more, what they're doing is yeah. is borderline ridiculous. 
Right? I mean, every fan wants their club the same players, but what's going on there is borderline ridiculous. Right? I mean, how many players have they signed this this window? Uh, and so, <clears throat> uh, what's more is they can only register three of them in the Champions League. And so, I'll tell you what, Phil, I think that this Chelsea window, uh, as well as their previous summer window under Todd Bowley, it's going to be the ultimate litmus test of financial fair pr- fair yes. play. You know, is FFP even a thing anymore? Should clubs care about it? Should we even give it the time of day? You know, I, I'm, I'm honestly not so sure, Phil. I once believed in FFP's you know, true objectives of trying to uh, instill more equality and, in general, uh, prevent clubs from going bankrupt. And, you know, we saw a lot of clubs doing that in the mid to early 2000s, uh, 2010s, when FFP was founded. And ultimately, I think that it is failed in its goal uh, to, to uh, restore some equality mm-hmm. and to prevent clubs like Chelsea and PSG at, from becoming these super clubs and sh- storing up all the talent. So I think that this Chelsea window in particular will be the litmus test for financial fair play. Look, I think it brings also to the fore two other questions that I think that I've ruminated on a bit for a bit. One of them is the utility of a transfer window in general. Mm-hmm. I mean, does it really benefit football to have two transfer windows? Because if what we have, and this is of course an unintended consequence of bringing in the transfer window, is we have clubs just like you say that are buying you know fifteen, sixteen players that are stocking up on talent, right? But if those football clubs knew they could buy in February or March or April if a need arose, would this happen? Would transfer fees be significantly inflated for those that are doing it, honestly, if there wasn't deadlines? If you, hey, you got a bias player by tomorrow or you don't get them, the window closes, they panic, that naturally increases demand, which of course will increase prices. And then of course brings the other question, should football resemble something like U.S. sports, where there really is no transfer fees. Yeah. Where, you know, it's not... So, so if you take out the transfer fee, you know, and and have trades and different... Maybe maybe there's ways around this, you know, and, and, and realistically in the long term, with more American ownership dominating yeah. football, are we going to see those type of changes where transfer fees become a thing of the past where that money essentially gets... Yeah transfer to the players i know the players would like that we talk about player power but the ultimate sign of player power to me would be that would be getting rid of transfer fees in general because essentially a player is losing yeah. players their players value is themselves and the club are compensated could be mostly compensated for a human being's work i mean if i wanted to go from one employer to the next and my employer was saying i want 50 million for this employee yeah I might find that difficult to swallow. But I'm curious, Phil, how would you execute that? A, a football yeah, world without that, yeah. transfer fees? I, 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 Zach, honestly, I, I don't have the answer to that question. Yeah. But I do think football is in, just like you were saying earlier, yeah. is in for some regulation. And the finances of football is going to be is in for some regulation. You know, there was an article in The Athletic yesterday that I found utterly ridiculous, even if it's factually, I mean, it can't even be factually correct because I don't know how they've scaled it, where they've said, you know, f- piracy of streams is costing football $3 billion. I don't know how you scale that, but are you assuming that everyone that steals a stream would pay for it otherwise? Mm-hmm. So how do you recalculate the cost? You know, secondly, all the other intersectional metrics that have caused people to take to its piracy, you know, it comes down to their own avarice. They're own great. So, you know, I'm looking at this and go, football clubs are awash with money. They're swimming in money, right? So that money's going to go somewhere. And ultimately, the players are the product. So the players are will, will eventually, uh, you know, I, I, I think that 
there may be some inevitability about this, um, where football goes towards resembles American sports, and uh, but there's still tremendous incentives for amortization of transfer fees, as we've seen with Juventus and and, and how they've done this, and yeah. you know it helps to cook the books. You know they need those fees in some sense. Yeah, one another thing I will say, Phil, about Juventus, I think that they're a great example of how. Sometimes abandoning that process of, um, that, you know, a careful process for big star signings like Cristiano Ronaldo, like Matthias Delict, can sometimes backfire. Uh, that it caused them, I think, to spend a lot less money on other transfers. Obviously, they had been going with the strategy of free transfers such as Dani Alves, such as Sami Khedira, such as Andrea Pirlo in the past. But I think that in, in terms of going for players such as Aaron Ramsey, such as uh, Weston McKinney, players of that caliber, I think it's, it's, you know, had them worsen in significant in plenty of areas such as midfields. So I think that Juventus, they're in for a, a tough season. It's a real blow for them, uh, considering how well they've been under Max Allegri. But I believe they're going to go down to 10th with Bologna and Empoli. Uh, going to have to rebuild and try to get some European football. We'll see what happens. So let me ask you a last question on yeah. this. Uh, does this uh, precipitate a exodus of Juventus players? Yeah, it's an interesting question, Phil. I think it has to. I think uh, it, it, it lessens their chances enormously of securing Champions League football. Uh, and that would be Juventus's first time without Champions League since 2011, maybe, if I had to guess. Um, a long time. So I think that's definitely going to be an issue. And of course, there's not even a, there's a good chance they don't even get uh, European football. So, you know, we'll see. We'll see what happens. I think that Juve are going to be able to rebuild and get into fifth or sixth position. Uh, but getting top four going to be a bit, a bit tricky for Max Allegri's side. And I think, of course, that would, would see quite a few players leave the club. Uh, first ones that come to mind uh, when I think of players leaving Juventus, Adrian Rabiot, of course, his contract expires in the summer. Uh, could he potentially get a, a big money transfer? Are Juve going to be financially able to, to compete with other clubs? Um, so apart from Rabio, I would mention Federico Chiesa, Manuel Locatelli, um, Vlahovic and Dusan Vlahovic. Uh, there are a few more, potentially Wojciech Szczesny, but Just overall, I, I have to say, I think Allegri has been doing a very good job on a squad that is limited in quite a few areas. Um, so it's a massive blow for them. Okay, my friend, we will see what happens with the second part of that trial, and we'll see what happens with Juventus. We'll come back to that topic once we have more information on it. Uh, want to turn our attention to Everton, because yeah. they're in a desperate situation. Massive football club, um, and really quite ridiculous uh, and, and uh, disgraceful how they've been run. Um, I know we've spoken to Everton fans, they have tremendous contempt for Bill Kenwright. Weirdly enough, most of the Everton fans that I spoke to did not have that contempt for Lampard, which I think he got off late um, in that regard. Because when I look at that Everton team, I know they're not stacked with quality, but they shouldn't be bottom of the league. Um, their, their talk in England is Marcelo Bielsa will come in. Now, Marcelo Bielsa, without a doubt, is a wonderful coach. Manager, I don't know. Uh, doesn't speak English. Uses a translator. Um, you're, as I've said before in this show, a polyglot. Someone that speaks multiple different languages. And I believe, and to, this is to the eternal credit of almost every footballer abroad that I see that speaks English, you know, and they speak it really well. Also believe if you go abroad and coach if you're English, you need to learn the language to communicate because I think context matters. And I think when something you say is going through a translator, they don't emphasize the same, the message is diluted. It's not ideal. 
you can get around it, but it's not ideal. Yeah. And when you're in a relegation fight, it's not the time to be pretty. It's not the time, you know, Marcelo Bielsa, if Everton stay up when they bring him at the end of the season, okay. But to me, they need somebody that understands the art of war. They need someone that understands this is not about getting Everton in the mid-table. This is about getting Everton in the 16th, 17th, so that they don't go down. You know, this is about, well, actually, we were getting in the 15th. So this is about getting them out of the bottom three to make sure they don't go down. And is Marcel Bielsa the guy to do that? I'll let you answer that. Yeah, I agree with you, Phil. I definitely don't think Bielsa is the right man for Everton at this moment. You look at the club jobs that he has uh, had, almost all of them have seen him take charge in July or June and having a full preseason to instill his methods. Uh, and when you look at his style of football, the high press, you know, the just swarming the ball, I, I can't see Everton's players having a perfect fit with that. I think they may need someone who's going to be a bit more pragmatic, uh, shall we say, a, a Unai Emery type, um, someone who's going to battle down the hatches and just just, you know, get them back to basics. I don't think that Bielsa is that guy. So there, uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens with that situation. I'll, I'll admit I was somewhat expecting Bielsa to go back into international management, potentially going mm-hmm. with Uruguay or Mexico. But uh, it, as far as clubs go, I just don't see Everton having a perfect fit with him. Yeah. And the thing about the way he plays I, I mean I'm reminded of when Rania came in United last season he was of course <clears throat> someone that was synonymous with the high press a couple of things you need one you have to be specifically fit to play that style of football right yeah. I mean if you go back to when Ten Hag lost against Brentford one of the first things he did after that game was make those players run 12 miles because that's how much Brentford outran them right it takes a while to implement that system. You need the right players to do it. But there's a key element of this. You need enthusiasm. You need players that believe they can win. You need players that are playing for the shirt, that are playing for the club, that are playing for a cause. Because it's extremely intense. right? So there's so many things you have to get right before that's an effective system. That you're probably going to lose a bunch of games before you start winning. You ha- This is why pre-season, when you have this style, is really, really important. It's not just about building a team physically, it's about building them mentally. And Everton mentally are on the floor. Are you going to get those players to give every last drop of effort on the pitch? I, I, I don't, maybe. But it, it, a, a, a pressing system takes time. And and I, I just again would question who the hell is making the decisions at Everton. Yeah, it's absolutely bizarre, Phil. And I think that, you know, as far as managers go, Lampard won't be regarded as a complete failure at Everton. He did secure their status in the top flight. But, Zach, he but ultimately have been in that What? Surely he shouldn't have been in that position in the first place. Absolutely. Wait. I mean I think that Phil, you know, he clearly had somewhat more success, uh, quote-unquote, at Chelsea and Derby, developing young talents. Mm -hmm. And frankly, I think that Lampard, right now, he needs to go back to the championship. Uh, He's he's simply not cut out for Premier League coaching at the moment. When you look at other coaches, whether that's Unai Emery, Julian Lopetegui, Mikel Arteta, fact is, there is no league with the managerial quality like the Premier League. Mm-hmm. Um, so frankly, I think he needs to take a step down, potentially MLS, potentially championship. Uh, we'll see what happens. But I, well, I do think that it's clear Lampard wasn't the biggest problem. He was a problem. And as such, uh, I think it does make sense to sack him at this point after losing to West Ham. You know, the, it, the fact is... Uh, you look at their form, I think one wins in 12 matches, if I'm not mistaken. 
it was poor and it was unsalvageable. So I, I think that they're going to have to look harder, you know, potentially go with an interim for a few uh, games, but ultimately try to find someone who's, I would say, a bit more uh, defensive, conservative, uh, counterattacking, pragmatic style. Um, I'm not too sure uh, who that coach is, but I do think that uh, Lampard getting the sack, it was, you know, just a matter of time. Um, he's it, Everton's form is untenable right now. They've been uh, losing to some of the worst teams in the Premier League and having their, uh, you know, getting played off the park. But one thing I have to disagree with you, Phil, is I don't think that they are necessarily stacked with quality. Um, I don't think they're you know, stacked with quality. They're definitely not stacked with quality, but they shouldn't be bottom of the league. Okay. You know, they're definitely, I would uh, yeah, they're definitely not stacked with quality. I mean, there's... You did say that, something similar to Vane. I want to... What I said was, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, what I would say is yeah. the players that he has in that team, there's no way they should be where they are. They have some good players. I mean, there's no question. Dominic Calvert-Lewin is a really good player. Andre Nana is a really good player. You know, they have, I, I think, Michelangelo is a decent player. Um, you know, I, I, Jordan Pickford's a good goalkeeper. You know, I think they have some, you know, uh, Alex will be too inconsistent. Um, you know, I, I think Dwight McNeil's a decent player. I mean, they're, in terms of their players, um, you know, Alan Gordon could have went to Chelsea for 60 million. You know, um, I think in terms of their squad, it's not awful. And it's certainly not a, t- a team that should be bottom of the league. So, you know, yeah, I mean, I'm not. I'm willing to give Lampard another chance. I'm sitting watching them while we're recording this podcast, Fulham and Spurs, and I know Fulham are losing. Marco Silva's an ex-Everton manager. I ended up going back down to the championship with Fulham. And when a manager feels it's not, he obviously came up and he's done really well. It's not always a manager's fault when they fail. And it's not always down to solely down to a manager when they succeed. You know, a lot of times there's a lot of other moving parts in, in, in businesses and clubs that, that will determine whether you're successful or not. Um, you just take the hit for it if you're a manager. So Lampard's young. You know, I think we live in an era where we're quick, too quick to write people off for failures, you know, and say that, you know, we, we, I've even seen managers in Germany get sacked multiple times and all of a sudden they get the right club, right environment and everything clicks. So I've seen it. In other countries too, so I think sometimes in England they're a bit quick to write people off. Um, Lampard will get another football club, but um, I don't. I think it will be a Championship club. Uh, we'll see what happens, but uh, yeah, I would agree that uh, Marcelo Bielsa is not the right guy for Everton at this moment in time. When me was to... the last time, Phil? When was the last time Bielsa even had a club? That was fighting uh, relegation because the only one that comes to mind is Lille when he took charge in the summer yes. and left them uh, hovering above the relegation zone. You know he isn't the coach who I think he I I don't think he's in a desperate enough situation uh, to pick up the phone and say yes I want I want to join perhaps the worst run club in the entire Premier League. And help them fight relegation. You know, is he is he a firefighter, as they call it? I'm not yeah. so sure. He's a fantastic manager. He did great things at Ellen Road. Is he a fantastic is he the right manager? man at Goodison Park? What? Is he a fantastic manager? Because there's a bit of a cult around him. And if you criticize him, there's going to be certain purists that are going to come out and be horrendously offended. I mean, that Leeds team that he brought up, okay, he brought them up. Roy Keane brought Sunderland up. Well, lots of manager brought teams up, you ended up getting sacked. That Leeds team, you know, were wide open. And you're going, you never made them hard to beat, made them entertaining. But if you needed a win, you wanted to play Leeds. You know, like even a terrible United team drilled them twice, hit five and six against them. Uh, you know, if you called him Mark Thomas or someone like that, would we be sitting saying he's this visionary? You know, if he was Sam Allardyce, you know, does he have a better record? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at this going, he's a great coach, I think. But is he a great manager? I don't know. Look, I think that Bielsa, you look at his coaching career, 
whether that's, you know, coaching Argentina, coaching in South America and uh, Europe. I think that he has made a good influence on his teams. And I think Leeds is a fantastic example. You know, he took charge of them when they were, what, 15 years uh, outside the Premier League. And he was able to guide them to the top fight and instill his style. With that being said, he needed time, right? He didn't get promotion on the first try, needed a second season. Everton don't have a second season. They don't have 18 months. They don't have, uh, you know, that much time to implement a process. They've, you know, if things don't turn around in a few months, Everton are going down to the championship. Oh, you've had a few so weeks. They need some they need someone who can make an impact right now. Absolutely. And yeah, as you mentioned, Phil, I'm just not convinced Bielsa is the right man uh, for them. They're bringing in Dan Juma, which I think is a really good signing, to be fair. Um, and they obviously need goals. Uh, I think Everton probably waited too long to do something on Lampard. I think uh, it was obvious to me a while ago that things weren't going to change and probably should have got rid of him because you're in a position now where every game matters. Uh, and, and you know they were playing a bunch of teams around them West Ham, Bournemouth, what have you and they lost all of them um, you know so uh, they uh, I believe they lost all of them yeah. and um, they should have brought somebody in to get that new manager bounce before those games, win those games because those are six pointers or give yourself a chance of winning those games and I know new manager bounce is just you know it's a sugar high but that's what they need right now they need immediate results. Get a bit of momentum to now the end of the season and then rebuild then. Uh, but we will see what happens. Brings me to my next uh, question. It's about Mikel Arteta and the uh, emergence of Mikel Arteta. There was nothing this summer that indicated to me that we were about to see this Arsenal. Yeah. As a United fan, I've had to watch difficult game yesterday. But uh, in some sense, you know, there's an admiration and appreciation for what Arteta has done because there's a resilience about Arsenal that hasn't been there since 2003. And Arsenal of old, when United went 1-0 up, would have been 2-0 down. They wouldn't have come back at 2-2. They'd have folded. They were, they were notoriously soft. I remember Troy Deeney talking about how easy it was to bully them. But Arteta has instilled a toughness in them, a resilience, a belief, and... One of the things that I'm impressed about is even if when they lost at Old Trafford, they didn't it didn't destroy their confidence. You know, they've 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 been asked big questions, they've come up with big answers. And I have to say, up until about two weeks ago, I still wasn't taking them serious as, as title challengers, but now I'm taking them serious. And Mikel Arteta has done a truly fantastic job there to get them in a position, I don't care if it's not the best Man City, it's not, that's not Arteta's responsibility, even if it was the best Man City, where they were remarkably consistent, Arsenal would still be top of the league or there are thereabouts, because they've been unbelievably consistent playing exciting attacking football, with the young team not backed by an oil baron. Yes, I know that the Cronkies are very wealthy, but he hasn't been given an oil baron budget. And so... I think he's done a fantastic job coaching and managing them. Yeah. I couldn't agree more with you, Phil. I think that Mikel Arteta should be the front runner for manager of the year. He's done an absolutely fantastic job with, uh, once again, a long-term process. Uh, he was given time to fail, given time to make mistakes, given time to implement his tactics at Arsenal. So it's been a long time coming, but I think that we are seeing for sure the the fruit of his labor. When you look at young players approaching their prime, such as Bukayo Saka, absolutely brilliant game. For me, the man of the match mm-hmm. against Manchester United. Um, players such as Eddie Nketiah. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that Nketiah, as well as Arteta, are due uh, an apology from, from a lot of people. They've proven a lot of people wrong over the mm-hmm. past few months. Um, you know, I was a bit skeptical, I must say, when they signed him to a renewal. I, I wasn't convinced he was going to be playing much in comparison to uh, a team like Brighton or Everton. But in terms of renewing his contract, he's, he's been able to 
you know, bide his time behind Gabriel Jesus, uh, do fairly well in limited op- opportunities. And when the time comes, you know, with Jesus getting a long-term injury, stepping up and having some absolutely fantastic performances. The biggest one coming against uh, perhaps the uh, most informed team in the league, apart from Arsenal in Manchester United. Eddie Nketiah stepping up big time with a brace. So I think that Nketiah, Saka, Martinelli, and of course Martin Odegaard, uh, plenty of players who are who are definitely enjoying some of their best form yet, thanks to Arteta's coaching. So I think it's definitely a mix of one uh, having Mikel Arteta there to develop these players and implement his tactics, but also uh, some really impressive transfers as of late: Ben White, mm-hmm. uh, William Saliba, Gabriel Magalhaes. Alexander Sinchenko forming a strong defensive spine. And that was really important, I think, against United. It really allowed them to dominate from start to finish. I know that United were in it for lar- for the entirety of the game. But uh, the fact is, Arsenal were able to have control for large parts of the game. They were yeah. able to go and and put United under a ton of pressure. And, and at the end of the day, I think they deserved the three points. Yeah, they probably deserved the three points and the balance of play. You know, I think there was, a, 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 they had a slight advantage in the, in the fact they didn't play midweek, which they didn't have to play midweek. Um, you know, and of course that resulted in Casemiro. Uh, but I have to give Arsenal credit where it's due. You know, they... That's not their fault. Uh, it's not they can only beat what's in front of them. And United are a hard team to beat right now, and they deserve they deserve the three points. And they they're on their top on merit. And uh, you know, I wonder. I would have loved to have seen what the odds were on Arsenal beat, winning the league this season, <laughs> and even being in the top four. Um, I would have said they were an outside bet. And one of the things that he's also doing. Is he's making Pep Guardiola and Jurgen Klopp really chippy? You know, yeah. I have never seen Pep Guardiola this chippy, and 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 Jurgen Klopp a lot of the the charisma that even a United fan like me had. Um, I want to say I I I I didn't mind Jurgen Klopp in the first couple of years. It really wasn't until about 2020 where he started to get on my nerves. You know, the first couple of years that he came in, I was like, he's a decent man. You know, he's a good guy. He's a brilliant coach. Done a brilliant job. I hate what he's doing at Liverpool. It's, it's killing me. But if if, if I remove my own bias and everything else, I'd have to say um, he's not the most dislikable Liverpool manager. The last year or two, I found a lot of his personal attacks on journalists on people that are interviewing him, you know, and I understand this is a high-pressure job, but I felt that he's unfairly dug people out, he's unfairly gone after people, you know, he's gone after other football clubs for doing certain things, then he's, they've done it themselves, you know, gone spoke about how other clubs buy players and then went and do it themselves, and I think, you know, uh, I understand, you know, when Ferguson did this in their main games, he was crucified, now it's accepted, but Mikel Arteta has quietly put enormous pressure on Pep Guardiola and Jurgen Klopp, and really the question then becomes: If Man City don't win the league this year, don't win the European Cup, there's two questions to me. No, won't spend too long on this. Is does Erling Haaland make Manchester City a better team? I know he scores a lot of goals. We talked about this in our United podcast earlier. That's an open question. I mean, United had to sell Van Nistelrooy to win the Champions League so that they got goals across the team rather than one player. When you have one player scoring goals, two things happen. One, you become naturally over-reliant on him. So if he gets injured, um, the team's forgot how to score without them. Inevitably, they have to get rested. They'll have bad days, just like every human being does. So the question is, are City better with Erling Haaland up front and... If City don't win the league, how would you, how would you rate Pep Guardiola's tenure at City so far? It's an interesting question, Phil. I I think that you know if City don't win the league, for me it's not that much of a stain on his legacy. He's won what 
Corn yeah, already. Yeah, yeah. I course. mean, I think that no matter what, even if they, you know, manage to complete some historic comeback and uh, beat Arsenal to the title. I don't think they'll be able to do that. But even if they do, uh, Pep is still going to be judged on City's form in Europe. That is ultimately the biggest question mark uh, regarding his legacy there. Uh, So, you know, we're just going to have to wait and see what happens in the Champions League. Are City able to finally put an end to the European duck? Uh, That, for me, is the biggest thing concerning Pep's legacy at City. I think that he's done a fantastic job in terms of securing uh, this domestic dynasty that was frankly unprecedented in recent years since, shall we say, Sir Alex Ferguson's Manchester United. Um, But to be able to put an end to so much competitiveness, to be able to hold off teams like Jurgen Klopp's Liverpool, right, that regularly hit, what, 95 points, uh, you know, to be able to secure that, I think definitely uh, speaks highly of his of his results and as well as his style of play. But with regards to the Holland question, Phil, you know, it, it's an interesting one uh, because Holland, for me, there's no question he's been their best player this season. He's been chipping in the goals and uh, taken to the Premier League like a duck to water. But with that being said. City have gone from uh, one of the best teams in world football to, frankly, uh, perhaps the most inconsistent version of themselves that we've seen under Pep Guardiola since his debut season at the Etihad. Um, you know, I'm, I'm just not too sure why we, have, why we have seen the arrival of one of the best players in world football coincide with this decline in form. And I, I don't think we can immediately write off the fact that it's uh, that it isn't a coincidence, okay? And I, I remember when when thinking about this, I remember the Ewing theory, right, which explained why a lot of teams uh, improve after the departure of their best player. I think uh, you know Atletico Madrid selling Radamel Falcao. That's a good example but plenty of other examples. And I'm, I'm just wondering, if Holland were to get an injury, would it have an inverse effect? You know, I'm, well, uh, it's, so it's a tricky question. I don't think too. that we can say, though, that, oh, City are worse and are having a poor season domestically. Uh, Holland needs to be benched. No, I wouldn't say that. Uh, I wouldn't say he needs to be benched. But <clears throat> here's the thing. I mean, you'll know this. Last season, people had this exact same conversation about Ronaldo. And whether, yes, he's top goal scorer. Yes, he's 20-plus goals. You know, Jimmy Carragher talked about this a lot. Does he make United a better team? And you would have to say, we've got samples before and after. You'd have to say, no, we didn't. Um, I'm looking at City's goals. Erling Allen is 25, right? Mm-hmm. So the closest to him after that's Phil Foden on seven. And three of those came in one game. So, essentially, you've got players on two and three and four goals, right, outside of Holland. They're not getting goals from other parts of the field. Yeah. Right? And that has greatly reduced De Bruyne's assist numbers, right? Phil Foden's assist numbers. I mean, Phil Foden's sitting on three assists this season, right? Rodri on four. Bernardo Silva on five. I mean, those are not huge numbers in comparison to what we've seen before. Yeah. And, you know, and, and as great as a striker as Holland is, and he is no doubt probably the best striker in world football right now, he never struck me as a Pep Guardiola type striker because he doesn't like I mean, he's never really played with those target men. That, that, I mean, Holland doesn't give you tremendous movement. He's brilliant in the box. You know, he'd see sniff, goal sniff, right? They do this. Do that, but he's always Pep Guardiola's always played with those interchangeable forwards, you know. And I always felt that this was one of the reasons why he wanted to move Aguero on, is because Aguero wasn't someone that would play through the lines in the same way, you know, some of his other strikers did. He ended up moving Gabby Jesus on, um, that he probably didn't trust him as an out-and-out number nine. I don't know, um, but I've just never felt that he you know, was, you know, we know what happened with Ibrahimovic for a year, it didn't work. 
never felt he was that type of player that Pep Guardiola would really um, would want on his team. Obviously, he's he getting the best young striker in world football, but that is, to me, walking a tightrope. Because if Erling Haaland gets injured, where are those goals coming from? Yeah. Look, and I think, interestingly, uh, you know, as much as Haaland has been a constant fixture in City's starting XI, they really haven't had that much in the way of consistency in terms of their uh, lineups, you know. Phil, if I asked you to name me what has been uh, City's most used lineup, you know, would you be able to tell me that? Would you be able to tell me who's played more between Walker or Lewis? You know, I certainly wouldn't. Uh, so I think that's definitely an issue. And we've seen Pep Guardiola like to mix things up with his teams. But I think that when you don't have a defined uh, first choice 11, that can sometimes cause a bit of inconsistency in and of itself. And it can lead to, uh, I think, decline in performances, which we've seen from a lot of players, such as uh, Phil Foden this season. You know, people always say, do you know your best 11? And my response to this is, I don't know if a manager should know his best 11, but he should know his best 8 or 9. Because there always should be a couple of positions where there's not much between the starter and the backup. If there's a massive gap between your best 11 and the other 11, that means you don't have a great squad. There has to be horses for courses. There has to be, do you know what? There's nothing to choose between these two. I'm going, And I don't mean that in a, in a mediocrity situation where both are, are average and, I can't, and one doesn't stand out over the other. I mean that both are ex- excellent and it's hard to choose between the two because... Players, like we just pointed out, players get hurt, players get injured, you need to rotate. What are you rotating? You know, there has to be a couple of positions for me that are not settled every week. We're like, he might start, he might start, they might start, this might happen, that might happen. If you know what a team's best 11 is every week, so obvious, then I think that's predictable and easier to prepare for. Then I, I think you should know your best 8 or 9 but maybe not your best 11. So, um, yeah, I, I think with Guardiola, he was you know chippy a few weeks ago when he was asked about making substitutions and why certain players were on the bench and what have you. Um, I think uh, they have a bit of a problem with Jack Grealish, that Jack Grealish doesn't fit this team. Jack, you know, you know if you go back to last season, Jack, um, we'll finish up here in a few minutes, um, Pep Guardiola was asked about Jack Grealish. Does he need a season to fit in the Premier League? Pep Guardiola's response was, "He needs to fit in right now. He doesn't have doesn't have a year. We're still in that settling in period for Jack Grealish. Two goals, three assists. I can give you twenty players right now that have cost a fraction of what he cost, playing in much weaker teams." that are not in the same position in his career, that are putting up better numbers than that. Jack Grealish is 27. Yeah, absolutely, Phil. I think that Jack Grealish, you know, it's undeniable that he's been a disappointing signing for them. And I think he, one thing that has been an issue is he knows, in particular, it's going to be very tough for him to repay that £100 million price tag. Uh, that's a very tough thing to place on a player's shoulders. But the fact is, he just hasn't been able to deliver. I do think that, you know, we've seen some improvement in recent weeks, as well as, you know, one thing that actually caught my eye, I think it was, again, it, it was from the Tottenham game. It wasn't a goal or an assist. It was Grealish racing back after a corner kick and putting in a last-ditch tackle on human zone. Mm-hmm. Uh, to stop a, a you know a potential goal scoring opportunity, we need more of that from Jack Grealish. We need more intensity. We need more. Uh, I think less. We need less fear to take the ball and run at a defender. I think you know the the Grealish that we've seen uh, at City. It's it's night and day from the Grealish we saw at Villa, uh, who was just so, not never afraid 
to take three players on at the same time, you know, just race from a deep position to the final third and just carry the ball uh, at his feet. The Grealish we're seeing now is, you know, has been very uncomfortable, I think, uh, shifted out on the wings. And, you know, it's often just looking to hold up the ball and uh, over and, and pass it to the fullback who's overlapping. Yeah. So I, mean, I just don't think we're seeing enough, uh, shall we say, aggression and, and um, aggressiveness to go forward and run at defenders. We're seeing someone who's taking some time to adjust uh, to Pep Guardiola's system, which, fair enough, we've seen plenty of players such as Rodri uh, adapt to City after a slow start. And I think that Grealish, for me, there's just a lesser chance of that because, uh, you know, you look at his age, you look at his profile, you you look at the results that he's had. um, Yeah, the fact is, I I think that it's been quite disappointing. Um, And unless we see, shall we say, a Kai Havertz moment uh, in the Champions League final, where, where he scored the goal. I just don't see Grealish ever being that 100 million player. I, I don't see him ever justifying that price tag, right? I think that Havertz is a great example of a player who was brought in for a ton of money uh, and, you know, scored one of the biggest goals in Chelsea's history mm-hmm. and yet has been a pretty dismal signing. The fact is, he has not lived up to his price tag he at all. He is—he uh, just isn't capable of of leading the line for Chelsea at the moment. We're still asking ourselves, what is his strongest position? Similarly to the Grealish debate, so I think that um, I, I, I think that Grealish—he's definitely shown some signs of improvement, but will it ever be enough? I'm just not too sure. We shall see, my friend. We'll go ahead and leave it there. Zaggy, as always, thank you very much, man, for doing this. Thank you to all of you for downloading, retweeting, following us. We really appreciate it. Go ahead and tweet us your comments. Uh, let us know if there's any topics you'd like us to cover. Uh, we'll be back again next week. Zaggy, take it easy, brother. Awesome. Thanks so much, man.